All right, you ready for this? Ready. Salemi, welcome to this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Chris Newmarker and I are in undisclosed hidden locations after our assault on Big Pumpkin last week. We're suffering some some large repercussions, but we shall persevere and we will not be silenced. Right, Chris? You know, Tom, uh, Tom, I never knew people had such strong opinions about pumpkins. It just... I mean, it's scary, man. It's scary. I know. I'm, I'm seeing like pumpkins left out on doorsteps all around my neighborhood. I think it has mm-hmm. to be a message, right? People are uh, letting us know that Big Pumpkin is listening. Yeah, I know. That's that's the biggest thing to worry about is Big Pumpkin. That's just totally, <laughs> totally. No pumpkin beard, no pumpkin brats. Let's move on. All right. No pumpkin left behind. Before we get into this week's episode, I did want to let you know that Chris and I are going to bring this this level of levity and jocularity to Device Talks Tuesdays. Coming up on this Tuesday, we're going to get to interview Jeff Karp, who's a really cool innovator at, uh, well, he's at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. He also has his own lab, the Karp Lab. And uh, you should definitely sit on this. Jeff is... uh, Coming in with no PowerPoint, he just wants to talk about innovation and most, uh, more focusedly, m- more directly, he wants to speak to the, uh, the ability to overcome failure in, in innovation. So Jeff's pretty honest about bad news he's received and, and ways that he's worked around it. And I think it's uh, certainly an important lesson for, uh, for this time. Totally. You know, he's such a great communicator, too. And you know, every time I hear about something that he's doing, it's really cool. So I mean, this should be a really good talk. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to that conversation. He's uh, he's really uh, an interesting fellow. He's done a TED Talk, and and that should be a lot of fun. We did have a great time, or I had a great time, with Mick Farrell from ResMed. He was our guest on this week's Device Talks Tuesdays. If you're interested in how ResMed sort of married their uh, medical technology and their digital health technology, you can go to devicetalks.com. We have all of those conversations on demand, so you can uh, you can listen. We did not have our cameras on for that one, but uh, there is a PowerPoint presentation that we sort of not really followed, but it's there for you. You can download that if you want to get some data from uh from ResMed. So it was a great, uh, great conversation. Yeah, they're a real digital health pioneer. I mean, that, 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 that's a, that's a really good, uh, good get for, uh, yeah. Yeah. They really seem to, to get it and they're really kind of moving it forward, uh, moving it down the field. So, uh, and Mix, he's, uh, just a, a good guy to talk to. So, yeah. uh, so we, so we, are you ready for like the new markers, news makers for, for the week? I absolutely am. We, we need to, we need to get you a theme song. I, we need to work on that. So drum roll, maybe do a, like a, I don't know. Something it's so quick. much bigger than a drum roll, but all right, for now, we'll all, everyone just, just silence your, yourselves and just imagine a drum roll and then Chris will engage. Go ahead, Chris. What's number five? Da, 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 um, da, da. <laughs> all right, here we go. Uh, number five, we've got uh, Hologic. They're launching a $950 million private offering. You know, and this, this comes about a week after the, the company boosted its uh, financial outlook for the fourth quarter. Uh, they're really big in the uh, COVID testing space right now. So, so some, uh, some good news over at Hologic. Uh, number four, we've got, uh, you know, Varian, they're uh, naming a new, you know, president and COO. They're, you know, their, their current Varian Oncology Systems president, Chris Toth, is going to be uh, promoting this newly uh, created role of the company. So a little bit, a little bit of change with the top management over Varian. 
Hey, so in the number three item, uh, this should be familiar uh, to you, Tom, because this, this is your story, man. This is what you wrote about uh, Smith and Nephew, uh, you know, seeking a new way into the, the OR amid the pandemic and, you know, and how they've turned to, uh, you know, Avail Med Systems, which is a startup that has, you know, high, high level telecommunication system to, you know, for operating rooms and, and surgery centers. So, you know, kind of like one of the big problems for medical device companies right now is it's really hard for their salespeople to get into health providers, you know, amid the, amid the pandemic. So this is kind of their Zoom, right? It's their... Well, I think the last time I wrote on the list, I covered Avail as well. And Avail is a very interesting company. They're actually going to be the topic of a conversation we're having on Device Talks Tuesday on October 6th. We're going to be looking at how their uh, ability to put equipment into the OR can help better connect uh, medical sales reps and other specialists with the surgeons who are in the OR. It's a really cool system. So go to devicetalks.com to, uh, to check that out. Again, it's happening on October 6th. Now let's get into uh, the interview part of our show. We're going to have two interviews for the today as we normally do. Later on, I'm uh, thrilled to be talking to, or I've already spoken with, Leslie Trigg, the CEO of Outset Medical. Stay tuned for news on them. Leslie and I uh, go back a bit, and it was great to reconnect on Outset. But first, I want to introduce Doug Teeny. Doug is the COO of Corindus Vascular Robotics. Corindus is has developed its uh, robotic system for interventionalists, and it's a uh, able to uh, allow an interventionalist to conduct procedures over thousands of miles using the 5G network. In fact, Corindus is the subject of a documentary that just came out this week. It's on Amazon and a few other streaming services. It's called Speed of Thought. And that looks at, the documentary looks at how 5G is impacting many industries. Corindus is demonstrating how it could impact, how 5G could impact healthcare. So, Spoke with Doug about Corindus's offerings and uh, how things might change with 5G. So let's get into this conversation with Doug Teeny, the COO of Corindus Vascular Robotics. Well, Doug Teeny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thrilled to be here. Well, I've, I've never talked to a, a, a web streaming star before, so uh, <laughs> I'm excited. It's, to get... it's less glamorous than you think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. Uh, I want to talk about uh, Speed of Thought, the uh, documentary that came out this week and is available on Amazon and, and other services. Uh, but before I do, I just like our listeners to know a little bit about who we're talking to. Uh, Doug, looking at your LinkedIn profile, I see you worked at Boston Scientific. And then before that, it was you were at the Army Corps of Engineers. Wasn't quite sure how you found your way into the med tech industry. Was it that was your first job at Boston Sci or did it start before that? No, my first job out of college was in the management consulting industry. So I made my way from there to Abbott Labs to Boston, oh, okay. to Corindus. Yeah. And, and how did you choose MedTech as your path? Uh, it was probably selected for me based on the engagements we had as a, as a consulting firm, but uh, I'm originally from the Midwest. Our firm were, were out of Indianapolis, Indiana, so we were up at Abbott Laboratories you know, for, for most of the early part of my career doing PMO implementation for drug development. And I just mm -hmm. fell in love with work in pharmaceuticals and then ended up doing multiple medical device engagements as a management consultant and up at Boston Scientific and never looked back. I was, I was there for, for you know, roughly 11, 12 years, 11 and a half years, and 
I still bleed blue on, on Boston Scientific. <laughs> I, I hear that's hard to get out, the, the, the Boston it's Scientific. It's hard to get out. Yeah. <laughs> I think Brenda shook it out of me. We're having you know, a good time with a, with a mission that we're pretty passionate about at Corinda. So it's, uh, it's been great. It's been a great run at Corinda so far. That's great. So let's, uh, I want to get into core path and your, and your tech in a moment, but I do want to just understand where Corindus is at in, in, as a company, as a corporate structure. You were acquired by Siemens uh, very famously last year for over a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. So how does Corindus now operate? Are you still Corindus? Are you Corindus Siemens? Are you a, a health ear? We're still Corindus and I am a health ear all at the same time. So what <laughs> What I've said about that is, you know, when you're you're horrendous and you're going, you know, year to year as a startup with an emerging technology, there there are things that come with that on needing to raise funds and needing to rejigger project schedules a lot. And that acquisition by Siemens has just elevated, um, you know, this whole pathway for us to the fact that, you know, it removes that question of whether or not we'll reach the finish line as a robotics company going after remote robotics. And it provides some certainty to that because Mm -hmm. Siemens is committed to that pathway as we are at Corindus. And uh, just finally on the corporate side, I know uh, Mark Tolan, the the CEO left, he's joined a very cool firm, Biostar. What does that mean for uh, Corindus's corporate structure? What's next? Well, Mark has been fantastic for Corindus. I've known him for a long time, um, back from Boston Scientific Days, and we benefited greatly from his passion and vision for remote robotics. So his his last day with Corindus is October 1st. Um, you know, Mark and I had a, a strong understanding that the way to move the company forward was not through any one individual, whether it be him or me, but to mm-hmm. create strong relationships with physicians and now leverage the power of Siemens Health and Air. So, you know, we're, we're moving forward and, and Mark's helped set that up and we're, we're thrilled to have, to have had him and, and wishing luck on what he's doing next. And you mentioned your experience at Boston Size, so you've worked in a, in a large company before. Is this a, a place you'll be for, for a time? That's the plan. It's working out really well for us at Corindus. We've been, you know, Siemens is a, uh, you know, a, a large company with a tremendous engineering team and, you know, deep assets and imaging. And those are all things that we need to make the vision a reality. So, We've got a, a good working rhythm with Siemens right now. They are, you know, we're pulling in engineers as we need them for projects and they're um, allowing us to still have a strong voice in the vision and how work gets done. So it's a, it's a perfect marriage in my mind. Let's talk about uh, CorePath. Uh, so tell us a bit about the, the tech. I mean, it's, it, you're, you're an, an interventional surgical robotic tool. So you've got a different, uh, a different focus than a lot of the other surgical robotic companies. What does CorePath do and, and why is there a need for it? What drives the need for interventional robotics? So the, the current iteration of our CorePath TRX system is focused on local robotics. Um, so you remove the physician out of the radiation field and deliver to that physician, everything that comes with the robotic system. So we're able to automate parts of the procedure. We're able to do high device fixation. We're able to offer precision movements that they that you just you can't replicate with, with a human hand. And then as they set in what we call the interventional cockpit with Corfat GRX, we've we put a 40-inch monitor, you know, a foot in front of the physician. So you get visualization capabilities that you just can't get reaching across the table. Mm-hmm. So my, you know, what I focus on when I talk about what CorePath brings to physicians is that that precision medicine, just the ability to fix devices, to move in micro movements. We can we can move and hold devices in sub millimeter level accuracy, 
And we're making a lot of progress at studying what physicians do to overcome vascular challenges and then replicating that in the robotic system and making those movements available for everyone who uses a, a robotic system. I always saw our interventional procedures as, as being a very, I mean, that's obviously a skill set, a skilled, a skilled job, but also it just seems like it's a, a lot of intuition, sort of a lot of, I guess, human feel and human touch. Is that something that, is, is that true, number one? I'm not an interventionist, so I don't know if that's true or not. But number two, how, if so, how do you kind of replicate that with the, the robotic experience? It's 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 great you ask it that way because we you know we've got a, a long term vision for incorporating AI into interventional procedures and doing prescriptive analytics and replicating techniques and we've always said the best AI in the near term is what physicians have in their head <laughs> and it is they are very skilled at what they do it becomes very intuitive for them and I. I tell anyone who asks, they're sort of like a natural athlete. They just mm-hmm. do it without thinking. So from our perspective, we take a very you know, focused engineering view and we watch thousands of cases and we, we break video down. We, we try to see where physicians struggle and where robotics could help. And we have a, an innovation model that we use called outcome-driven innovation, which essentially looks at what is a physician doing today that's not going well for them and how do they want it to go? And that's, that's the sweet spot for us to come in with a robotic solution. So there's a combination of pulling out of their heads and experience what they know and what they do in challenging cases. And it's combined with delivering a robotic system that can really amplify what they can do with their hands with the precision component. And how have you been received by the uh, interventional community? I, I think fantastically. We've got you know a number of you know key opinion leader accounts that are helping us build the field. Um, we're dependent on steering committees and physician advisors to guide us on where robotics needs to go. And I think if you know with physicians that have the right vision, they understand what's possible. When we look at our our out years on our tech roadmap with remote robotics and automation. And they're very engaged today to, mm. to both complete cases safely and to help build that future. Looking at the past year, I mean, this is a question I'm asking everyone. Uh, how has uh, how has COVID? Uh, how did it impact your year or, or change this year? Change your year? Well, it's been we've had you know we've had to figure out how to move capital hardware projects forward in a virtual way. Mm-hmm. So. You know, there's a little adjustment to COVID, but we've hit a nice rhythm of scheduling lab time, of working with physicians virtually. So, so it's gone well. But, but I think the, the bigger storyline for me on COVID is where we want to go with remote, with remote robotics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, telemedicine has been greatly accelerated. And this concept of having a video consult with a physician used to be foreign to people. I, I feel like it's becoming an acceptable standard of care at this point. Absolutely. And that acceptance and that infrastructure that's being built around diagnostic telemedicine is the platform that, that will enable us to launch remote robotics because for to transition from diagnosing a patient to treating a patient, you just need to extend that physician controls. And so we we think it's it's a good thing what's happened with telemedicine, and and if there's any silver lining on on the dark COVID cloud, it's that there are some advancements that are happening in medicine that are going to be good for patients. 
And to be clear, when you're talking about the diagnostic, you're talking about imaging, reading imaging over your computer, not telehealth where you're talking to your doctor on a FaceTime. No, I think I think I'm talking about both. If you okay. think about, you know, the, the stroke diagnostic network today exists where a, a neurointerventionalist can talk to a patient, determine if they're having a stroke and yep. get them routed for care. If we were able to treat that patient at the same time they're diagnosing that stroke occurring, um, there's ba- there's great benefits for the patient. Good. I'm glad you clarified that. Second part of my question is uh, just the rise of ASCs, uh, ambulatory surgery centers. Is that something that's uh, that is impacting you as well, or is that a different class of procedure? It's it's a different class of procedure um, with peripheral and coronary interventions from where we're going with stroke, but it's very relevant for uh-huh. us. You know, looking at how the where physicians practice and how we have to consider robotics fitting into those contexts or something that we, we study closely. There's nothing disruptive about, um, you know, ambulatory centers coming into play. Um, it's just a matter of studying workflow, understanding the patient population they'll be treating and then adjusting our, our playbook for that. So we, we watch it closely. We're responding to that. But from a a perspective of where Corindus is going focused on neurovascular interventions and stroke, um, there still are a very limited number of centers around the world and in, in, the, in the United States where you can get treated. So it's not a trend we see with where we're moving for the future. But is that, and let's move into the, the more telesurgery discussion, because that's the, what's what the Speed of Thought uh, documentary is really focusing on, your ability to have, uh, you had a surgeon who performed procedures over the 5G network. Where does this fit into, where does telesurgery fit into our, our future healthcare care system? And, and what uh, shortfalls does it help uh, overcome? Yeah, so when I've talked about it this in the past, I I, I reference some some heart attack data and some stroke data. Mm-hmm. So if you are to have a heart attack today, you have roughly ninety minutes before you're going to be faced with with death or permanent disability to get into to a hospital. 80% of the U.S. population lives within an hour of the center that can, can treat them. So for most of us, that's that's a fine place to be. But we think it ought to be closer to 100% these mm-hmm. days. There's no reason that we shouldn't have that care available for everyone. And you do not want to be in that 20% that doesn't have a treatment facility. So, so remote robotics closes that gap. It essentially takes a, a developed um, coronary market and heart attack market and, and provides access to everyone despite your location, um, despite how rural you may be. Stroke is a different story. Minutes matter. Right. Um, if you roughly lose 10 minutes of having blood flow reestablished in the brain after a stroke, you lose a month to 40 days of a disability-free lifetime. So an hour and a half delay on getting a stroke treated is loss of one year of disability-free life. Most of the transport times to get to a stroke center are two to four hours. So you're, you're two years off the top mm-hmm. of losing disability-free lifetime after the stroke event. And so remote robotics plays a significant role there that if a patient who has the onset of a stroke symptom can get treated at the first hospital they arrive to and not be rerouted to a hospital that can take care of them, you're adding years to people's lives and you're literally doubling their chance of an independent life afterwards and taking billions out of the U.S. and global healthcare system on long-term care costs. If we can treat patients sooner, everybody wins. What does that solution look like? Because you're, you're, I think, 
essentially anticipating or hoping or projecting that smaller hospitals will be buying core path and having them in place to help these these patients uh, yet those are also the hospitals that can least afford big capital items like this how do you overcome that well dr ryan mater talks about that in the in the film where he says you know it occurred to him that if he's able to do a robotic case 10 feet away from the table mm-hmm. why not Farther. And so we've we've kind of pushed that on what we can do with telecommunications companies like Verizon and have discovered that we are able to extend the reach of the decision from a from from the cath lab to a different room, to a different building, to even outside the state, as we demonstrate on the 5G documentary. So for us, it opens up. I think with long-term capital planning, any hospital system can plan um, for the appropriate network um, and the appropriate um, capital budget to afford a robotic system. And if we're clear with phys- with hospitals and physicians about how to prepare for this technology when it's ready, we think it will have significant uptake because it's patient driven and they're in the business of taking care of patients and, and the motivations are all aligned. And it's one of those few technologies where everybody's on the same side of the fence about mm-hmm. getting to market so we can close some of these gaps. Have we figured out the financials yet? Because that's what got in the way of, of telehealth. If not payers not willing to pay for that FaceTime call. Do we know if the if the interventionalist is at uh, Mass General Hospital in Boston and the, the core path is out uh, two hours away? Uh, who gets paid for that procedure? Well, it's, uh, it's what we're working on now. Yeah. So we think that there is additional reimbursement that will be available for patient benefit because of the the outcomes that we have. But that's very much a work in progress. And how physicians will work with partner hospitals and how payments will flow is probably something I'm not ready to comment on. We've got work. You haven't figured that out yet, Doug? Come on. No, but it's a bit, it's a good question because it's really important to figure out because we, you know, we'll tell folks that we've got, we think we've got the technology, you know, understood. There's a lot of development work to make it reliable, to make it safe, to build confidence in what we're doing. And there will be some clinical data that we'll need to collect to demonstrate that. So we're, we're now dealing with all the surrounding questions as part of our development project on reimbursement, liability. Yeah. Uh, you know, intra and extra hospital relationships and how that's going to work. So it will need to be sorted by the time we finish the project, but it's not sorted today. Oh, that's a great point. I mean, I, and I'm, I may be wrong in my projection. I said that I put the, the interventionalist at, at Master General Hospital, but maybe they're at a remote site that is in a strip mall someplace and they just need access to a 5G network and a, and a computer and they can perform procedures anywhere. Yeah, to, to temper the excitement um, that people tend to think about with what you can do with remote robotics, we always say we should be connecting one qualified healthcare center to another. Okay. Mm-hmm. Our view of the initial deployment, this would not something that we envision a physician doing from their house or from their <laughs> in their jammies. You don't see that happening. Yeah, we we don't. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's from hospital to hospital or from appropriate center to hospital. All right. Well, then I'll I'll remain a podcaster. Then it gives me that flexibility. And and <laughs> <laughs> anything else we should know about Corindus? What's what's next? You've got uh, the applications in coronary vascular, neurovascular interventions. Are you moving into any new areas that you can talk about or, or new technologies? Well, the, the the focus is absolutely on remote robot. Robotics, yep. um, and then after that on stroke and out the out years of our technology roadmap are focused on bringing autonomous navigation um, to interventional procedures on bringing more data and AI capabilities. And I think our long-term view is if we have a remote robotic system where a patient can be treated when they need it, wherever they are in the world, 
if that supports a physician with data-driven decision support and the ability to automate components of the case, it comes together into, a, I think, a robust and commercially viable solution. So I think the, the, the out years for us are very interesting and we're looking at very, you know, very similar to how the automotive industry thinks about autonomous navigation. We're thinking about autonomous navigation within the, the blood vessels in the body. Uh, that's outstanding. All right. Well, it's very exciting stuff. Uh, congratulations on again on being part oh, of uh, part of the uh, the documentary. I'm sure folks will check out Speed of Thought uh, on Amazon and uh, and other channels. And thanks again for joining us on the podcast. It's been great to talk to you. You're welcome, Tom. Thank you very much. Well, that was a really good interview. So, so Tom, you ready for the number two? I am, man. Bring us the El Duo. Well, you know, this is uh, this is actually kind of grim. Um, you know, the uh, there's uh, you know, authorities in Germany are in- investigating whether uh, a hospital ransomware attack might have uh, resulted in a negligent homicide. So, I mean, you know, when it comes to healthcare and uh, cybersecurity, stuff's getting real. Wow. You know, what, what happened was this uh, hospital in Dusseldorf like had like a major attack on their IT system about a week ago and you know a woman who needed life-saving treatment uh, she had to be uh, you know taken to uh, to a, to another uh, hospital in the area and you know you know she died amid the delay you know the um, it's interesting too because the the media a lot of the media reports are saying that this might be the first time that you know a hospital site cyber attack has uh, has caused the death that's that's the other side of the coin isn't it when we talk about uh, tell of this and tell of that that there's always a threat of uh, of someone nefarious getting in and, and causing harm. So that's, that's really tragic, terrible to hear. And I, I know, um, you know, for years, you know, covering the industry, I mean, you, you hear all the time about cybersecurity being concerned in med tech, but uh, I wonder, it, it's going to be really interesting to see, uh, you know, how much more of a priority that this, this becomes now that, you know, we've actually got you know, somebody, you know, somebody is potentially dead because, you know, something didn't work out. Well, that certainly is a tragic story and that's something that uh, we'll need to track. So, well, now, uh, now this time for the number one story, Chris, uh, let's, let's hear what was the most popular story on Mass Device this week. Well, you know, the number one story, this, this, this for change is actually some good news. Um, we, you know, we've got, uh, you know, Outset Medicals IPO. They raised nearly $278 million. Really good to see a, a good MedTech IPO going on here. Well, this is a crazy coincidence, Chris, because I just happen to have yeah. an interview here with Leslie Trigg, the CEO of Outset Medical. And Leslie talks about their uh, their move in dialysis. When, when I first met her a few years ago, Outset had uh, really, I think, a, a, a far less ambitious goal. Uh, still would have been a much greater improvement over dialysis. But in this conversation, Les is going to talk about how Outset sort of saw a, a, a bigger solution that it could provide. And uh, it's really, it's a great story. And also we'll talk about the IPO itself. It was an interesting experience. Uh, Leslie said it wasn't quite the experience that she was anticipating when she would eventually take a company public because of COVID. But in the end, she realized the value of it. And going forward, she's of the mind that... Uh, you know, in-person row shows may not uh, may not be necessary anymore. So that'll be interesting. Wow. Some some good good stories there about uh, about investors in their uh, in their toddlers. So all right, well, let's hear this. Uh, Sounds great. Let's go. All right, so let's hear this <laughs> conversation with Leslie Trigg, the CEO of Outset Medical. Well, Leslie Trigg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. 
Congratulations on the IPO. That's great news for Outset and for MedTech. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we were really, really excited for the for the team. I mean, this was definitely a team victory. I want to get into Outset's story in a minute, but first I want to hit upon the uh, the transaction. So you, you, you raised over $250 million, and we can get into the details in a moment. Uh, there's been some discussion about whether you could have raised more because the stock has done so well post-IPO. How are you looking at this whole IPO process and what do you say to those who, who suggest that you could be could have raised more capital through this transaction? Well, I think our goals were first and foremost to raise the amount of capital that we felt was required to really take advantage of the market opportunity ahead of us. So yep. get, getting the capital in was, was goal number one. Goal number two was the quality of the investor syndicate. We were very, very focused on getting really the best and highest quality investors um, in the world around the company to match the quality of the investors that we had in the private syndicate, right? We, we have always had uh, the benefit and we're very grateful for it um, of having kind of premier investors like Fidelity and T. Rowe and, and you know, Partner Fund, Perceptive Advisors, et cetera, around the company um, in its private stage. So you know, with those two goals in mind, getting adequate capital raised and through a very high quality syndicate that we feel will continue to support the company you know, through thick and thin, the valuation for us certainly was important, but the way we thought about it was striking the right balance between a return profile that made our existing investors feel really good about it and a return profile that would make our new investors feel really good about <laughs> it um, so that it felt like a win-win for all involved. Uh, whether we hit that mark, uh, you know, I, I, anybody can speculate about that. I think from our vantage point, you know, getting it done at, at the raise amount required to fuel the business with the quality of the investor syndicate that we were able to attract and at a valuation that we feel or we've heard you know, from, from a, a broad array of investors, you know, we, we felt like we hit on all three marks. So that's a great point about bringing in the right investors because I mean it's it's long it's long been said that IPOs for for med tech and life sciences companies aren't aren't really exiting opportunities they're they're or aren't liquidity rather they're more of a financing strategy and then certainly some exiting can happen but as a as a company that will be around for a long time and now is on, on the public markets how how do you look at that that uh, investor base going forward how how much control do you have? or want to have over sort of the, the types of firms that you're working with? Is it, is it completely different than it was when you were raising private capital or, or you still want to make sure you have the right people sitting around the table? I think our approach was very similar to the strategy that we pursued as a private company. Mm -hmm. The difference is that there is a, just a more limited universe of public market investors that also invest privately. So we were always going after uh, investors who had a very long-term mindset who had a swing for the fences attitude and who trusted the management team to pursue it in a really bold fashion, sort of a bold, fearless fashion. Mm -hmm. Those three attributes were exactly the same as those that we applied during the allocation process. The difference is that we now had a broader universe of investors that could invest in, in outside as a public company. But the, the emphasis on quality, and, and again, we defined quality um, against the three attributes that I just alluded to, that we never wavered from that. And, and because we know that, I mean, the aspiration here is really big. You know, this is not just introducing a new device. We're, we're trying to change the sort of the whole fundamental landscape of when and where and how dialysis is delivered. 
that is still not for the faint of heart. And we very much are just getting going. This is not really the end of the book. It, it is the beginning. And so um, I still felt very strongly that we needed to attract the same types of investors, long-term minded, swing for the fences and supportive of a strategy that will be very bold in both its ambition and the way that we execute against it. Let's talk a bit about the roadshow. And we're all talking about Zoom nowadays and uh, how it's how it's fitting into our lives. Uh, I know these roadshows are getting condensed down into into less than a week from from uh, several weeks before. How did that? Well, number one, did you do you think you do you feel like you missed out on that uh, on that I guess experience as dreadful as it sounds of of taking a company public through the, the the prior ways and uh in answering that i suppose let's let's talk a little bit about what what the process was like uh taking this uh taking this story forward sure i you know i'm not gonna lie i grieved that a little bit yeah. uh, maybe early in the process when it became abundantly clear that it was going to be via zoom and that there was absolutely nothing we were going to be able to do about that, particularly when it, it started to involve a 14-day quarantine entering New York from California. <laughs> um, that was probably the final nail in the coffin. Uh, I was still holding out hope very late in the game that we could do it in person, but not because we wanted it or I wanted it as a life experience. I think just because I'm still very old-fashioned. I'm old enough to be old-fashioned in the sense that the I still believe that an in-person presence um, in developing relationships, and that's what we're doing here. We're, we're, we're trying to not sell IPO shares. We're trying to develop long-term relationships with investors that we want in and around outset for a very, very long time. And so I am old-fashioned in believing that relationship development is best done in person. However, uh, I grieved it and we moved on. <laughs> and then, um, you know, thought about ways that we could utilize Zoom to create the closest possible in-person experience. So for example, and this is just very tactical and practical, we decided not to do our roadshow meetings in a big um, boardroom. Mm-hmm. Because in a, in a big boardroom with three of us sitting there, we had, you know, we would have had less of an opportunity to really have face-to-face contact because we would have been so far away. <laughs> and, uh, and then for somebody looking at our slides, we're even further away because our boardroom shot is in a tiny tile in the upper right-hand corner. So we would really look like dots on a screen. So for example, we made the decision for the three of us to all be in different um, offices within Outset mm-hmm. so that we could have kind of a, you know, a, a close-up shot of, of our faces and, and so that people could try to get a little bit better sense, you know, of our personalities through facial expressions and, and then the interaction we were having with one another. Two, um, we really, I was actually really happy with the number of investors who were also on camera. I was wondering about that and um, I, I really you know, credit the investors for um, for making that, you know, not only the investment of their time, but in, in making sure that they were showing up visually as well. So um, I guess I would say at the end of the day, I actually probably wouldn't have done it any differently. I really liked it. And I heard, I think it was Adina Friedman of NASDAQ, make some comments about, hey, maybe, maybe we never go back to in-person roadshow. And um, I would endorse that. And, and it's not just about not having to travel. It, I think we were able to achieve the same objectives. I, I think we were able to establish rela- the relationship development piece virtually. And of course, relationship development happens over time. It's not, you know, it, it's not a one-time interaction. It's, it's going to occur 
um, over time and also as we earn the trust and, and credibility against our own performance. I, I'd love to find out how you, you did that, how you got a read of the people on the other side of the screen. And I almost wonder whether COVID is kind of a great equalizer. I mean, this is all a great shared experience we have. We all have stories to tell. We've all had animals and pets and kids wander through screens and stuff like that. I mean, did that kind of come into play that we're all in this large global pandemic together and that sort of kind of breaks the ice a little bit? Absolutely. It definitely humanized uh, each of us, both on the management team and the and the various investor teams. We always took a few minutes to, as we were waiting for everybody to assemble, oh, where are you calling in from? Oh, where are you? And oh, you're in the attic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what's, that, what's that you doing? Now, is that, that's interesting. What room are you? Now, are you doing some work in the back there? Or, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, pet, pets would wander in. We had, uh, and I won't name names, I mean, we, we definitely had numerous toddlers, you know, jumping on investors' <laughs> laps. And, um, and that none of that would have happened in the, in the, the coterie of anonymous conference rooms. Right. You know, we would have walked in, nice to meet you, here's my background, let me give you the pitch on outset and we and we're off. So yeah, there, there was it, it lent itself to uh, definitely more personal interaction, which for for me at least gave me a much better sense of who the person was under the um, under under the the name of the investment fund. That's great. Now that's a great point. And yeah, you're right. When you're going from no conference room to conference room, I'm sure they all blend together after two or three weeks. This I think you probably are able to remember. Oh yeah, that's the person who had the really neat painting behind them or something like that. We oh I remember every single person we met with. Every single person definitely aided by those that were on camera for sure. But I remember very specific details. We were in one meeting and we had talked to this individual, uh, this particular fund um, many times, maybe three times. And I, I felt comfortable because he was always in the same place um, in his living room. And I and I had a sense of comfort because I knew the paint color and, you know, and he had like a particular molding on the, and it, you know, it's almost like you're being invited back into somebody's home and quite literally we were. That's great. Who were the other two people in the call representing outset? I was joined by Rebecca Chambers, our CFO, mm -hmm. and then also Chad Hoskins, who's the uh, GM of our newly formed home business and also our vice president of strategy. Excellent. Well, that's a good, good segue. I wanted to talk a bit about, about Outset. I think when you and I met, we were at a Heartland Summit probably five or six years ago when you first started at Outset. Outset, at the time, if I remember correctly, was very much, we're going to take dialysis out of the, 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 the larger clinics and, and make it more friendly, maybe in the back of a CVS, something more approachable for, for people. Now you've you've really advanced that idea and that goal to to bring it at home, at least as part of your business. I wonder what has transpired over that time. Did you see that there was a greater need for what Tableau would provide or did technology advance more quickly than perhaps was initially uh, understood, and it allowed you to do more than you wanted to do. What what has transpired from when you took the role of CEO to to now, where you're again offering much more than I think we were talking about at the time? Well, I think the the number one thing that changed is I was lucky enough to attract some extremely smart people to the team <laughs> who who saw, <laughs> who saw things and uh, believed in a vision that was much, much bigger, to your point, than, than even I had originally imagined. And so as this kind of bigger, bolder ambition um, took shape, it wasn't actually so much about including the home, it was even bigger than that. And, and so what we started to realize again, and I truly credit a few members of the team in particular here who um, who kind of opened our eyes to what could be achieved, it expanded into what we ended up calling and describing to investors as an enterprise solution for dialysis. Mm. And the reason why we say that 
is because if you look at um, health systems, whether you know it's a nonprofit health system, for-profit, national, big, you know, regional health systems, they do have to deliver dialysis across their enterprise. They are delivering dialysis in the ICU and on the floor of the hospital, and oftentimes they'll own you know a rehab facility or a skilled nursing facility or or an outpatient dialysis clinic, a home program, you know, or all of the above. So. So they've got this sort of like enterprise cost problem <laughs> associated with dialysis. And mm-hmm. what I think the big aha moment was realizing that we could develop a technology that could be delivered, as we say, sort of anywhere, anytime, that would enable um, health systems and providers to down-select just to one machine. And that's the part that has not actually been done before. Um, the dialysis equipment that has been um, developed and and implemented in the past has been really, really safe and effective, mostly for one type of treatment. You have one machine that principally just does three or four hour treatments. You've got another machine that principally just does 24 long, 24 hour treatments in the the ICU. You've got one machine that principally just does home. And so um, as an analogy we used with uh, a lot with investors on the roadshow is that a lot of the, the machines were sort of one blade of the Swiss army knife and the technology vision evolved to hey, you know, let's try to build the Swiss army knife. And you could do that, then you would really simplify the complexity of dialysis from the health system point of view. You could really simplify that by enabling them to down select to one device platform, one hardware platform, and, and then again, provide an enterprise solution, kind of same device, whether it's being used in the ICU or at home, which is going to provide a lot of operating efficiency and um, and cost reduction. So that's the that's really the principal way in which the vision evolved. And I, and I love the the term aha moment, and that's sort of where I was going to go with my question. Was was there actually a moment where that happened, where you saw a PowerPoint slide, or perhaps you were driving to work, or walking the dog, or whatever you might have been doing, where it sort of just all came to light, or was this kind of a more gradual realization at the at the true opportunity you were facing? Well, our I and I won't mention the name of the hospital, but yes, one thing that comes to mind and our, our um, SVP of sales, Jamie Lewis, was just reminding me of this. She had she had championed this idea for a long time um, with, mm-hmm. with great tenacity <laughs> to her, <laughs> which for anybody who knows Jamie won't be surprised to hear that. Um, so she sent me to a hospital. Um, she's like, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. And so she sent me to a hospital. I won't, I won't name the hospital. And what I saw there, yeah, I, I saw just all these different machines all over the hospital. They all required you know, one had to be connected to like a water treatment room. One was requiring like hundreds of bags of, of dialysate fluid um, in, in order to be operated. Then I saw like some required portable water purification equipment to operate. And I saw, you know, two nurses required to like move this equipment down the hospital hallways and it could barely fit in the patient room. And so having seen all this, she reminded me just the other night that I sent her an email um, and it was just the subject line. And it was three words. And I don't remember doing this, but I, it probably was my aha moment. I emailed her and I said, I get it. <laughs> and she's printed that out, I'm sure. Well, she actually said. said she printed it out. <laughs> I would have for sure. That's great. Uh, just final, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, final question. We asked about COVID's impact on the roadshow. I'm curious about COVID's impact on your future. I know you have to be careful about projecting and such, but just overall, has the the way that healthcare is changing, have the reluctance of people to go into clinical settings, has that opened up opportunities for outset and Tableau going forward? Well, I think that there will probably be some long-term tailwinds here uh, in several directions. So first and foremost, there is, and, and hospital executives and health systems have been very public about this, 
I think obviously there's going to be an even greater focus on uh, you know restoration of, of operating margin and and how do we get a rationalized PL um, post COVID? For many hospitals where elective procedure volume may not be as predictable, you know, those growth rates may or may not be as predictable as they once were, um, a focus on cost reduction might just offer a lot more certainty um, to improvement on operating margin. I think uh, most, if not all, hospitals are going to continue, you know, a march toward better operating margins and, and a recover, financial recovery. And Tableau offers a solution, you know, a vehicle for, for which, through which they can do that in, in the, you know, cost reduction for their dialysis program. So that's one tailwind. The other one on the patient front is the perhaps the one that you just alluded to. I think there's no question that, and even outside of dialysis, I think the COVID experience for all of us has made us think twice about being in you know, crowded healthcare environments and perhaps you know, encourage many of us to mm-hmm. think more and maybe desire more to, to be treated at home for any condition. And so I think the trend is certainly bigger than dialysis, but it encompasses dialysis. And, and we do believe that dialysis patients will likely have an even greater incentive and perhaps speak with an even louder voice about their desire to dialyze at home. And, and of course, we believe with an easier and more accessible technology, um, we're able to enable that for people, you know, open up the envelope for the patient population, expand the aperture for the number of people who, who can really use a dialysis machine in their own home um, successfully and safely. Well, great stuff. Thank you again for your time. Congratulations again on the IPO. And uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Tom. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, we're, we, you know, we feel like we're just getting started. It's, um, it's great to have you know, the additional capital. And uh, you know, we're, we're an ambitious group. So we're, we're going to not stop trying to raise the bar. So I, I, I appreciate you taking the time to learn more about it. All right. Well, it was great to connect with uh, with Leslie Trigg, and I hope everyone enjoyed the uh, earlier conversation with Doug Tini of, of Corinda's Vascular Robotics. And uh, Chris Newmarker, it's always a great day that I get to spend some podcast time with you. So uh, so thanks thanks for compiling this very in- impressive always a pleasure. top five. And please do tell our listeners, how can they find you, Chris Newmarker, on social media? Hey, you can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. And you can uh, find me on Twitter at Newmarker. Always happy to talk. And I am also on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi, making lots of great connections there. Thanks to everyone who's reached out. And you can find me on the Twitter machine at MedTechTom. All right. And once again, if you are going to connect with us on LinkedIn, feel free to uh, send your email. We will include you on a Zoom invitation to our call next week. Chris and I record these very hilarious introductions and uh, podcasts via Zoom. And we'd be happy to have you on the call as well. So if you just want to uh, hang out for a bit, have some fun, talk med tech, please do send us your email address uh, via LinkedIn. And uh, we'll make sure you're on the invite. And uh, it'll be some crazy kind of fun, Chris. What do you think? So, Tom, if no one shows up, I mean, are, are you going to take it personally? Or are you going to be like, no, no one wants to hang out with us? I will actually think much more highly of our audience if they, uh, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, you know what? <laughs> These people have better, have, know their priorities. But, uh, but I mean, like, I don't need to hang out with these clowns. <laughs> I got stuff to do here. <laughs> I'm going to hear all about it on Friday. Why do I have to sit through it? But it's a, uh, it is, it would be fun to connect to folks. But, uh, so, so please do reach out on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Please do share this podcast with your friends. Uh, 
I'm getting lots of great positive comments from folks uh, for the podcast. Last week's podcast went extremely well, one of our most popular. And uh, as I tell people, please, on LinkedIn, please share, please tell your friends because we'd love to have more people listening and, and we'd really like to grow this uh, Device Talks weekly community. So, all right, well, that is a wrap. Thanks again for joining us on this week's Device Talks weekly podcast. Tune in next week. We'll have another great new marker newsmakers list and a couple of great interviews from leaders in the med tech industry. Big Ten Football of the Month, OH! <laughs> what does that even mean? I think we're good. Go get your sandwich.